And uh, we're at that part of the Old Testament where we're beginning to explore the part that gives shape to the world that Jesus comes into, that the Apostle Paul comes into, and that the early church uh, is kind of born after. So we've covered all that part up before, and now we're coming to the part that is the, uh, the exile and the restoration. Uh, we're going to spend two weeks in each of those. Last week we began to look at the exile. Um, last week we looked at a couple of things. One is to know that even though the exile is not covered within the histories of the Old Testament, uh, the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles actually end a little bit before. Uh, the Kings does not pick up the narrative again, but Ezra and Nehemiah will pick it up. But surprisingly, it just kind of leapfrogs over that. But if you remember last week, do we have resources that shine light into the exile? Do you remember that? We have psalms. And so some of the psalms are like written in Babylon. For example, by the waters of Babylon, there we lay down, there we wept. Thank you, Jackson. I refuse to do Krigma without Jackson here, okay. Uh, the, uh, we also have psalms that deal with what happens back in Palestine, back in Israel. We have the book of Lamentations, which again, do not ever read if you're depressed, uh, but is written from the viewpoint of those who remained in Judea and talks about what the devastation was like. We actually have two eyewitnesses to the exile who write. One is Ezekiel, who's taken in 597, and the first group of exiles taken away. Uh, he's a priest in the temple. He's not yet a prophet. He will be called by God to be a prophet while he's in, uh, while he's in Babylon which is one way of saying that God was active not only just in Judea, but that God is active across the world. And then we have Jeremiah, who's the one we're going to draw very heavily on this morning. Uh, Jeremiah is a prophet before, during, and after. He actually becomes a prophet several years before the first king is taken into exile. He lives through that. He lives through the second exile. He actually remains in Judea for about seven years after the temple is destroyed. And those are the writings this morning we're going to be able to kind of draw and get a feel for. Now, to help us understand what these traumatic events are like, uh, we looked at those last week. Uh, we also examined another thing last week I want to just lift up very briefly because it's become very increasingly important as we roll forward. And that is Israel tried to make sense. Jackson may need to back off the mic just a little bit. Uh, tried to make sense of, of what happened and of why it happened. And this resulted in the emergence of something called Deuteronomic theology. You find this, it's a type of thinking, it's a type of thinking theologically. You find it in the book of Deuteronomy, but you also find it in Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, which scholars refer to as the Deuteronomic history, because it has the same theological themes as the book of Deuteronomy. This theology sought to explain what happened. It did so in terms of um, Israel failed to obey God, and because of that, Israel was punished. And you remember the, the theology of Deuteronomy, if you obey the Lord your God, it will go well for you, you will thrive, and you will live long in the land of Israel. But if you do not follow the, the law of the Lord your God, what happens? Things fall apart. Did things fall apart? And so the, the thinking was there, why did God allow all this uh, horrendous stuff to happen to us. Well, we were not faithful. Well, that sets up some interesting dynamics. It also shows the way of the future through obedience to Torah. If we're punished 
because we didn't obey. But if now we will, if through obedience, all God's promises come true, an interesting dynamic is set in place. All of a sudden, the observance of even the most minutia of the Torah becomes important, doesn't it? You know, if, if, if the way forward is, if we will obey God, if we will obey God's law, it will go well, then I don't want to miss crossing a T. I do not want to miss dotting an I. And so one of the characteristics of Second Temple Judaism, you see it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you see it with the Pharisees who debate Jesus. This obsession with the most minute, insignificant detail of the law, because in this thinking, there is no insignificant detail of the law. Total adherence to God's law is absolutely crucially important. Today, what we want to do is to shine a light into a corner that very few people know much about. Uh, but it's an area that in the last 20, 30 years, uh, biblical theology has spent a lot of time, a lot of energy, and a lot of books about because it turns out that there's some things going on during the exile that are absolutely determinative in terms of what happens into the future. And they basically shape the New Testament. So we don't want to leapfrog simply because kings leapfrogs over, because chronicles leapfrogs over. We, in fact, know the information. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah is who gives it to us. We want to take a look at that this morning. There's two things that you can read literature on. One is called the myth of the empty land. The idea was out there, the land of Israel was empty after the exiles left. That's a myth. We want to look at that. And the other is, there, there's this group of people who increasingly become important. And they're, they're in Hebrew, it's Am, people, Hamaretz, of the land. So this people of the land, who are they? Because they're crucially important for a whole host of issues. Uh, we do this because if we can get a handle on this today, then as we roll forward, I think it'll make more and more sense. Uh, we can understand as we move closer to the New Testament and then in the spring, as we begin to examine the New Testament, the ministry of Jesus, these same themes are there and we can begin to see. Now, understanding these helps explain a lot of really different things. I just want to show a few of them to you just so you can get it. First of all, it's just bizarre. When the exiles come back from, from uh, being in Babylon and they enter the land, there's a lot of people there who basically say, great, you're back. You're going to rebuild the temple. You're going to rebuild Jerusalem. Let us help you. Let's do this together. Do you remember what they were told? No. You're not allowed. And you're not welcome. Well, that's just strange. What's going on there? We also find out a little later, with Ezra and Nehemiah, who come a few generations later, that these people who've come back have intermarried with some of the people they found there. And they've had children. And now Ezra and Nehemiah show up and say, by the way, you have to divorce anybody you've married of the people of the land. And if you've had children with them, you have to disown them and put them aside. Bizarre. So what in the world is going on there? Obviously, it's significant and it's important and there's some issues there. It also deals with this member that the hostility with the Samaritans. That starts in the exile. And it kind of rolls forward. So if we can under get a handle on this, we can understand the tension with Jesus and the Samaritans and all that in the New Testament. Other groups. One of the things we know about Second Temple Judaism is it's highly sectarian. Jews don't like other Jews. <laughs> Jews call other Jews sinners. Jews call other Jews foreigners. 
Jews tell other Jews, you are not part of the people of God. Well, what is that about? It goes back to the issue we want to look at today. Uh, this whole business of non-Jews. Also, Israel's desire to be separate. As we roll forward, what we're going to see is Judaism increasingly becomes insular. And the walls start going up. And we begin looking at the world in terms of us and them. And then we begin to be concerned about things that, that, that can identify who us are. Like, we keep kosher. You don't. We keep Shabbat. You don't. We circumcise. You don't. Again, a hallmark of second Judaism. Judaism. So, that's what we want to look at today because it's very significant. But again, it's not well known. Our ace in the hole here is the book of Jeremiah, particularly chapters 40 and 41, which deal with this, this period of time that we don't really know much about outside what Jeremiah says. So behind the myth of the empty land and behind the people of the land, there are some deeply disturbing questions, which we kind of hinted at, but just to put them on the table. Why do some of the biblical writers, not all, this is one of those places where it depends on what book you're in, but Ezra, Nehemiah, the Chronicler, and the book of Ezekiel in particular narrate the story of, is of exile and restoration as well as the subsequent history of their nation in such a way that the future only lies with those who are taken to exile and come back. Everybody else doesn't count. If you remain in Israel during the exile, you don't count. If you went to Babylon and didn't come back, you don't count. If you went into Egypt, you don't count. If you went anywhere else at all, you don't count. So the only people who count are less than 1% of the Jews. The other 99% of the people don't count. That's what we want to look at. Why were those who were left behind in Judah airbrushed out of the narrative, which is basically the issue of the myth of the empty land? The land's empty. Nobody's there. Not true. But little revisionist history, we can take care of that, okay? And then rejected by the returning exile, which is the whole issue of the people of the land. So here we go. The Bible lets us know that this is not a late development of the exile. It happens immediately. It happens at the very beginning of the exile. Jerusalem is not even destroyed. The temple is not even destroyed. In 597, when they come in and take away, remember the king and that small group taken away? It starts there. And it starts with Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And we begin to see in their writings from the very beginning a discounting of anybody else. That's uh, the future is going to rest solely. And this is even weirder. The future rests solely with the exiles taken in 597. Even the exiles taken in 586 with King Hezekiah don't count. It's only the first group that counts. Jeremiah 24. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, uh, true prophet, he's using props, okay? And he's apparently demonstrating this. Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles of Judah, okay? Whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans, another term for Babylon. But like the bag, bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so I will treat King Zedekiah of Judah, who's the king that's put on the throne after Jehoiakim is taken away in 597, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in the land, and those who live in the land of Egypt. That small little group, good figs. Everybody else, 
you didn't make the cut, okay? For Ezekiel, not even God remains in Israel after the Jews leave, the exiles of 597. Ezekiel has this long, elaborate deal where he basically says, not only were the exiles taken by Babylon, God left with them so that God was not even the land of Judah during this time. Ezekiel goes to great plains to depict God leaving the temple in Jerusalem and joining the exiles. Now, it's a series of uh, uh, passages over a series of chapters. This is the Reader's Digest version, verse 10. Then the glory of the Lord, euphemism for God's presence, you know, God's self. The glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house, being the temple, and stopped above the cherubim. So this image of God is that God's presence, which resides between the wingtips of the two seraphim, begins to leave and starts raising up out of there. And at several stages, this is about the fourth stage. Then the glory of the Lord ascended from the middle of the city. And then he finally winds up by saying, these were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the river Kabar. Remember what that is? Babylon where he's called to be a prophet, and I knew they were the cherubim from the Ark of the Covenant. So God has vacated the premises. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to Chaldea, to the exiles. God left Israel. God is with the exiles in Babylon. Okay, for Ezekiel, God only returns to the land of Israel and to Jerusalem when the exile return. And he has a parallel set of passages where step by step they come back. And it ends with God entering Jerusalem, entering the temple and hovering back on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because the exiles have just returned. For Jeremiah and for Ezekiel, those who are left behind in Judah are bad figs who've been abandoned by God. Godless bad figs. How would you like that as your epitaph? You know, okay. Uh, the question is why? Now, the key to unlocking this and what is going on with Jeremiah and what is going on with Ezekiel and some other books is what has become known as the myth of the empty land. Uh, there's two parts to this myth. The first is simply this, that the land of Judah was empty during the exile. Specifically, there are no Jews left behind. They're gone. And it comes, the, 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 the title of the myth of the empty land comes from this passage from Chronicles 36. The king of the Chaldeans killed their youths with a sword, had no compassion on the young men or the young women, the aged or the feeble. God gave them all into his hand. Now, common sense, who do you think they got? Sounds like everybody. Well, not quite. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his son. So it, it, from this perspective, it looks like Babylonians kind of killed them all. Well, not quite all. There's a group. If they survived, what happened to them? They kind of got carted away to Babylon. All the days that the land lay desolate, it kept Shabbat. Now, what is Shabbat? Rest. Nothing going on. So the image we get there, uh, the word is an interesting word, is a shamem. Uh, and shamem is, is not just desolation. Shamem carries with it the idea that what you see is so shocking, it takes your breath away. With it is an emotional component. You know, it's just, I mean, you're, just, you're just shocked because there's simply nothing left. 
uh, and there is emptiness there. And so that is the way the land of Israel is described. And so in this view, everybody's either killed or taken into exile. No one's left, therefore the land is desolate, shamim, or it's empty. It is keeping Sabbath. In other words, it's not being used. So we get this kind of image. What's it like back in the homeland? What's it like in Palestine? Second part of the myth is that the exiles who actually, when they came back, encountered a lot of people, which if you think the land's empty and all of a sudden you encounter people, what, what question does that raise? Where did they come from? And who are these people, you know? Uh, so this is the second part of the myth. They could not possibly have been Jews. There were no Jews, according to this thinking, in Palestine at the time. They could not be part of Israel. Now, if you're a Jew and you're not Jewish, what's the other alternative? You're a foreigner, okay? And that's exactly what we find here. Uh, we find it particularly in Ezra and Nehemiah. There's Ezra 9 and Ezra 10. The land that you're entering to possess, this is Ezekiel speaking to the returning exiles, is an unclean land. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's the holy land you're talking about. No, no. It's unclean. Now, what makes land unclean? Foreigners, Gentiles. It's filled with their pollutions. The pollutions of, and this here it is, Am Haaretz, the people of the land and their abominations. They have filled it from end to end with their cleanlessness. So twice we're told that this group, whoever they are, they're unclean, they're polluted, and they are abominations. Now, Ezra 10 makes the connection of the dots. We have broken faith with our God. This is years later. They've come back, and they've kind of been hanging out with some of the people of the land, okay? Getting married, having some kids. We've broken faith with our God. We have married foreign women. Well, who are these foreign women? Um, Haaretz. So the people who are there couldn't possibly be Jewish. They have to be foreigners. Here's the weird thing. We know for a fact that's not true. And we know it archaeologically. And we know it biblically. Because the other biblical books that narrate this story tell an entirely different story. They tell a story of people staying in the land, being Jewish. And so when the people come back from exile, who do they encounter? Their fellow Jews, who happen to be called the people of the land. The land is not empty, and it's not filled with foreigners. Uh, it is full of Jews. All the sources, this is going back last week, tell us, I guess two weeks ago, uh, not only the small faction of people into exile, we remember 2 Kings, Jeremiah, all these sources, even Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, if we go with Jeremiah's smaller number, and he's the only eyewitness of the group, less than 1% of the people went into exile. Uh, and that includes both groups, by the way, 597 and 586. So this first group is even smaller than that. We have eyewitness testimony that there were people left. Now, not just Jeremiah, but Jeremiah is our gold standard here. Jeremiah mentions this actually five times in his writings. I'm just going to share one with you. But the captain of the guard, Babylonian, left some of the poorest people of the land to be vine dressers and tillers of the store. Remember the tax base? You don't jack with the tax base, okay? You leave the tax base, which is probably the 90-something the, the percent. This is also confirmed. Israel is the most archaeologically excavated place on the planet, and there's, I don't think there's any rock they've not looked under. Uh, we know, we know with some great detail what's going on there. And by the way, recently there's been some development. You know, you've seen the stories about satellite imagery? They can, beam a they can actually beam radar from a satellite that penetrates the sand 
you may have seen this, they can find the old uh, caravan trails under 20 feet of sand and just brings them out. Also, ground-penetrating radar. So they run around these little devices and they can kind of get a feel. This is where they find graves. The one I want to share with you is what's called field survey archaeology. This is interesting. One form of this, there have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands of archaeological digs done in, in the Holy Land. And they've gone anywhere from modern day back to 12,000 B.C. And those all exist. The problem is, how would you, how would you, how would you compile that? Well, field survey archaeology puts all that stuff into a massive computer program and then says, crunch. And guess what you find out? You find out not a particular archaeological site, but you find out what's going on in the whole geographic area. So they know exactly what went on in Jerusalem, in Judea, in the area before, during, and after the exile. Reader's Digest version, short version, give you the books if you want the longer version, is that not only was the land not empty, but the destruction is limited to Jerusalem itself and a few cities immediately around Jerusalem. The Babylonians didn't come and take everything off the map. They took the seat of opposition and the few cities that were related to that. Uh, outside Jerusalem, the population actually went up. And it went up with Jews. Why would it go up? People running away from Jerusalem. You know, you got a stupid, idiotic king who's going to rebel against the mightiest empire in the world, and you know what's going to happen. Where are you going to go? Anywhere but Jerusalem. And so particularly up north in the hill country, there's, a, there's an explosion. Tens of thousands of people migrating, and the, the only thing that's common sense is they're coming out of Jerusalem because we know from what they leave, they're Jewish, they're not Gentile. Traditional archaeology, again, helps us. They can go in and excavate this, and they can see, you know, uh, guess what? No pig bones. That means... Jews. Uh, later it'd be stoneware, but the pottery and stuff, everything says these are, these are Jews. They're not foreigners. We're not seeing a massive influx of foreigners in the land. Simply is not there. Babylonian policy also would dictate this. In the ancient world, the Romans did this. I think probably people still do it. If you want to occupy a country, U.S. tried that, labor intensive, correct? Much, much more efficient to rule through the local people which is what's happening now in Iraq, and we're trying to do that in Afghanistan. Same way in the ancient world. You come in with your army, you do what you got to do, you work with the local elites, they're going to govern for you. If they don't do the job right, we still got the <coughs> army, the army will come back. Every empire in the ancient world did that. Um, so they're going to rely on, which by the way, tells you, are the only people left in Palestine farmers? No, and we actually know that from, uh, from uh, Jeremiah again. Foreign presence. Now, Mitzpah is, depending on who you talk to, five to eight miles north of Jerusalem. This becomes the Babylonian headquarters to run the whole geographic area. By the way, if you're unemployed or underemployed, where do you want to go? Mitzpah. Particularly if you can read and write or an elite and you've got some skills, okay? They set up their administrative center there. And this is, uh, Jeremiah tells us about this. So in addition to those who go into exile, uh, only a small fraction return. Josephus tells us this, as does Ezra Nehemiah, which means this is another dynamic now. You've got a small little cadre of exiles coming back, and they're coming into this vast ocean of what? Um, the people of the land, okay? Now, if you're a small little group, 
and you're moving into an area where there's a very massive group, is that a threat to you? It's an absolute threat to you, okay? Uh, the vast majority would have been these people of the land that we hear a lot about. So the problem for the exiles is who the people of the land are. And we want to look at three factors about this. Those taken to exile, they're the elites who rule in the palace and the temple. Those who were left behind are primarily the tax base, but we know from Jeremiah, not exclusively the tax base. Among the elites uh, who were in Jerusalem before its fall, and this accounts for both 597 and 586, there are two different groups of elites who do not agree with each other. Guess what issue they don't agree over? Should we or should we not rebel against Babylon? Now, that'll divide you, you know. There are some who think it's a good idea, and there's some who think it's a bad idea. Those who thought the revolt would succeed, they stayed in Jerusalem, they fought the Babylonians. If they lived, where did they go? Babylon, okay. There's a whole other group. Thought the revolt was a bad idea, or at least they're pragmatic enough to know you can't pull it off. It will not work. They leave Jerusalem before the Babylonians arrive, and they are not taken into exile. Again, the prophet Jeremiah gives this wonderful insight, chapter 38. King Zedekiah, so we know the first group's gone. This is between 597 and 586. Said to Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Judeans. I'm afraid of the other Jews. Now, why would a king be afraid of the Jews who have deserted to the Chaldeans? Some of the elites are already bailing on him. For I might be handed over to them and they would abuse me. Now, I don't think he's afraid of Joe Blow Farmer or Joe Blow the grape tender handing him over. I think this is some of the other people who ran the country who've gone over. This means that those who remain in the land, the exile, not include the poor, but also elites that support, did not support the rebellion. Um, those who went into exile are going to see this group in not so kind terms, right? This is not going to be their favorite group of people. They are disloyal. They did not support the rebellion. They are traitors. In addition, Jeremiah is going to tell us that many of the elites who remain actually, oh, this, this is insult to injury. They went to work for the Babylonians and helped them to run the country. Jeremiah 40. Those who had not been taken into exile in Babylon went to Jedaliah. Now, Jedaliah is a Jew. The King Jehoiakim taken away. Another guy from David's family was put there, King Zedekiah. He's the one they put out his eyes, kill his children, haul him away. Now, Jedaliah is not even a king. He's just one of the elites that the Babylonians say, okay, we don't have luck with kings. We'll put you up there. Those who had not been taken exile in Babylon went to Jedaliah at Mitzpah. Jedaliah swore to them, saying, do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Stay in the land, serve the king of Babylon, and it shall go well with you. That's the sales pitch. Okay, here's the result. When all the Judeans who were in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom, right-hand side of the map, all the countries on the other side of the Jordan, and in other lands, heard that the king of Babylon had left the remnant with in Judah and had appointed Jedaliah as governor over them, then all the Judeans returned from all the places in which they had been scattered. Make sense? It's safe. Babylon's dealt with the revolt. They've killed or hauled away those people. Now we can go back and get our lives started again. They came to the land of Judah, to Jedaliah at Mitzpah. And they gathered wine 
and summer fruits and great abundance. So they step in and they take over. Now, from the viewpoint of those who fought, <coughs> lost, and now in exile, how are you going to feel about these folks? Okay, They remained, especially if they're fellow elites. They did not support the revolt. They're now collaborating with the enemy. Now, how many strikes does it take in baseball to get out? We need a third strike. Okay, Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel tell us that those who were left in Judea take the land and the possession and the houses of those who left. So Babylon carts off the cream, and there's this nice estate over here. Ooh, Joe's not going to be using it. <laughs> Joe is no longer in the picture. I think I like that place. He's got land. He's got property. He's got crops, and he's gone. Well, who should take care of that? That should be us, Ezekiel 33. The inhabitants of the waste places in the land of Israel kept saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he got all the land. We are many. Surely the land is given to us. You like the thinking there? Yeah, nice thinking. Okay. Jeremiah tells us it's worse. Jeremiah says it's the Babylonians who gave the land to these people. Jeremiah 39. The captain of the guard left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. So for the exiles, those left in the land are traitors, collaborators, and thieves are the biblical term godless bad figs. Do you get the hostility? Okay. Are you going to be surprised next week when we turn to Ezra and Nehemiah that sparks are going to fly? Okay. This is the backstory behind that. Okay. The other significant factor, and we're just going to touch this today just, just for a second, and then we'll develop it coming forward is, is that the returning exiles are so few in number. Now, if you're small in number, surrounded by people that you detest, what's going to happen? Friction, fights, paranoid. They're going to, you know, they're going to take us uh, so that it's going to just ratchet up the tension. Uh, they are clearly going to be perceived as a threat. Now, how do you d d uh, deal with the threat? Are we going to allow them to work with us? No. Are we going to intermarry with them? No. Do we want them to have any part of our, so our society? No. What do we want to do with them? We want to put them away as far as we can, which is good. So the stage is set for a massive conflict, and it's a conflict that's going to then roll down through the centuries, shaping the Maccabean Revolt, the Hasmonean Era, the Greek period, the Roman period. It's going to affect the ministry of Jesus. It's going to affect Paul. Remember all the conflict with Paul, with the other, the Gentile? All of this is related. These guys are gone for 70 years, and they come back. So next week, we want to look at the Restoration. Primary text are Ezra and Nehemiah, also Zechariah and Haggai, as they will give us some insight into that.